From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Seven minutes after 12, Rob Faye here till three o'clock. Thank you for making me a part of your afternoon wherever you are. I hope I find you and I find you well. Well, I don't know, man. There's not a lot going on in Vancouver, so I don't know what we're going to talk about here. I'm <laughs> just joking. It has been an unbelievable 24 hours when it comes to everything that's come out from Ken Sim and the park board. So figured we'd get right into it, right out of the chute. Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor, kind enough to join me. Pete, good afternoon. Happy to be here. And it has been a crazy 24 hours. Man, I just like, I thought it was going to be a sleepy Wednesday and... Not, Not the case. case. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, let's let's do the timeline thing right out of the gates. When did you first find out about this, and how did it kind of trickle down from there? So we had a legal briefing uh, on the Tuesday. Um, we didn't know what it was. It's a closed in camera meeting, so we got a legal briefing on what this context was. And I understand that the park board commissioners were uh, informed a couple of hours later, so at about five o'clock. So we heard kind of rumors, and there was you know the mayor's motion was kind of vague, intentionally vague. So there was lots of speculation, and this certainly was one of the things that had come up because we knew that there was some tensions at Park Board. Um, you know, we'd heard that the mayor had lost control of the board and that they didn't support his choice for, for, for the new chair and the new vice chair and that things were, were tense. So this was one of the, the speculations. So when you think about this, and, and obviously Park Board's an elected body, it doesn't really feel in this moment like the people, the voters, are having much of a say in this decision process. No, and I think that's that's the real you know critical mistake here. I think that uh, the disdain for sort of the democratic process, because you know, Ken did put forward a park board slate, and they got elected, and they had the support of of the public to do a certain job that they were tasked for. And of course, those park commissioners who got elected with ABC put their reputations on the line, put their lives on hold. Uh, really, you know, went out there and put themselves out there on what they believed in and in, in reforming the park board and stuff. And I think they were you know, rightly upset when they were blindsided by the decision to just abolish the park board. So we'll get into both sides of this, but I want to ask you if you thought the park board might be an easy target. They've had a tough couple of years. We talk about this audit that I'd really like to get into because I feel like this is where Ken Sim's going to hang his hat on is the fact that he's got some analytic, he's got a little bit of number. But when you just look over the last, say, 12 to 18 months, park board right now has dropped the ball on a couple of things. Is this the right time for Ken Sim to make this move? I mean, I, I would argue that they haven't dropped the ball, really. They've actually been you know, changing direction of the ball and they've, you know, and, and bearing in mind that, you know, the park board is essentially a management board for operations and strategy and that the funding to do anything comes from us. And that's really was the, the, the tenor of the auditor general's report. So the auditor general's report, and I chair the auditor general committee, and we just had that uh, report delivered by the AG uh, just a couple of hours ago. And, you know, the intent and the, and the direction from the auditor general certainly wasn't to disband the park board. It was to have better clarity and better communication from council and park board so that when we are making budget allocations to the park board's ask, we're, we're, we're understanding what their needs are because there are significant deficiencies uh, in facilities and parks that the park board doesn't have revenue generation tools to, to pay for. They do rely on, on, on some kind of tax base. $20 million? Is that is that the ballpark where we were finding the discrepancy right now? Like they were struggling in the area of about twenty million dollars for that's, funding. That's what I heard from Brendan Baskiewicz on the last budget. Yeah. Yeah. So my, I guess my I would question, say there's more than that, though. There's more, more like yeah. facilities, and a lot of the facilities are are, are yeah. managed by us through real estate and facilities management directly through the city. So it's it's a bit more complex than than what's not in the in the mayor's motion, which really doesn't get into any data or analytics or any metrics at all. It's really quite a quite a light uh, motion, I would say. And it's, it's online now and anybody can read it, but there's, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of substantive data to support the mayor's assertion that 
that he needs to take this over. So it does come back to this idea of political control and centralizing power in the mayor's office. Pete Fry is a Vancouver City Councillor joining us here on the Joe Bennett Show. We'll open up the phones in uh, segment two, and you can ask your questions of Councillor Fry. Um, I just listened to Mike Smith for the last three hours getting ready for my show. I had him on in the background, and every single caller to this station, it was like a perfect game, said that they were ready to abolish the park board. What is the misconception? Why are so many people on the left on this? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I I think... One of the things, and, and we heard uh, Bastiavansky and Scott Jensen talk about this when they were on the shows yesterday, is that the park board is kind of the most direct-facing kind of relationship that a lot of people will have with local government. So, you know, park board is responsible for the parks that we use every day, for the Little League fields, for the community center, for all these kind of pieces that are really front-facing. Most people, you know, what we deal with uh, at city council is you know, sewers and road infrastructure and building permits and that kind of stuff. stuff. Yeah, but the stuff that's largely invisible to the majority Mm -hmm. of the public unless they're actually applying for a permit or they're a developer or what have you. The park stuff is really close to home for a lot of people. So when there's a frustration with it, of course, it, it, it comes back on the park board. But I think... And of course, when people call in, it's generally people who call in with a with a complaint, not not a compliment. We know that is kind of the general squeaky squeaky wheel analogy. <clears throat> or axe grinding. I forget. I'm mixing up my metaphors. <laughs> but in okay. any event, um, you know, I think that the park park board does represent a really front-facing kind of part of city life. Um, and certainly there have been issues with par- encampments and parks and stuff. And I, I'm sympathetic to the park board because, of course, they're bound by by law. And, and we've seen that, the, you know, provincial courts have maintained the right to, under Section 3 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, that if you have nowhere to go, you can camp in a park and and the park board have absolutely nothing to do with that as much as they would like to, you know, assert more control over the parks. It's their public spaces. And so there's a really complicated relationship there. Yeah, well, you bring that up. And, I, and there was one thing that I circled that I wanted to get into in the first segment. I felt like things came to a head during Oppenheimer when council and the mayor couldn't supersede the park board when it came to clearing out that particular space. Had they been an appointed bar, board and not elected things, could they have gone differently in that particular instance? Um, you know, I, I mean, they, they certainly might have made a more decisive decision at the direction of the mayor and council of the day, but it wouldn't necessarily have changed the outcome in the courts. And one of the things to recognize is that every time we seek a court injunction in any kind of thing, and like, let's take the encampments issue because that's what we're specifically talking about. Mm-hmm. But when we go to the courts and seek a court opinion, if it doesn't go our way, we've, we've kind of constrained our little legal box even more. So every time we go to court for any kind of injunction or that kind of appeal, we, we, we tighten the, the, the box around us and we have less options and less flexibility. So it's kind of a, can be a bit of a risky play to try and take this to the courts and roll the dice and see if the, if the judge will agree with us. Because more often than not, it's not the case that the judge agrees. 604-280-9898. What are your thoughts on the... Uh Ken Sim announcement that came down just yesterday. We've been talking about it consistently. I've got Pete Fry, Vancouver City Councilor, kind enough to join me in studio. So again, 604-280-9898, or you can hit me up on the buzz line at 604-331-2899. Well, Pete, we were talking during the break, and you brought up something that I thought, you know what, we got to talk about this on air. We go right back to Ken Sim's victory speech right on day one. Yeah, well, and, and back then, you know, he promised that uh, ABC was born uh, to make they were their, their, their promise was to make decisions in government not on the advice of polls, lobbyists, activists, or whatever's trending on Twitter, and then you know followed with some kind of vague but largely insincere promise to use evidence-based solutions. But we see now that the mayor is making this decision entirely based on 
Daily Hive polls and call-in radio and, and not based on evidence because there's not a lot of evidence in his actual motion. It's really just unsubstantiated claims and vagaries. How would you say Ken Sim has done? I know that you're a bit of a, a, critic, a critic, a bit of an opposition. We, obviously, we had Brennan in here yesterday who didn't speak very well of Ken Sim at the helm. Um, I, it's a really vague question, but at the same time, this is a moment where you can really look in and see what kind of mayor Ken Sim is. Is he listening or is he just acting? How would you assess his first year at the helm? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of slogans, a lot of swagger, but not a lot of actual meat delivered. And I think Folks are starting to recognize it's like, well, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty tough tax increase in the first year, but maybe he gets a pass on that because he's brand new. But, you know, it's not delivering on a lot of the things that I think a lot of people expected when they voted for Ken Sim. And, and that's starting to come home. And I think really this this particular move to disband the park board without really surveying an actual public input after putting these four folks forward to run as a park board with a promise that they were going to fix park board to just turn around and kill it after a year. I think that really does strike as quite insincere and, and, and I think it's going to backfire on them. You know, there was one thing I worked in communications for a number of years and, you know, everybody thought that this just came out of the blue, but then Ken Sim yesterday came out with a really well-produced video that you don't just stand in front of a green screen and do in two takes. I mean, this looked like it had been there for, you know, a significant amount of time and then they dropped it as soon as the announcement came out. So my question is the communication within council, because that to me is a really important thing. Obviously, the three members that got, you know, that got put to the side yesterday didn't get communicated with well. How is the communication within the council right now? Well, it's pretty much we're, uh, as non-ABC councillors, we're not part of uh, the communications. We found this, we saw this motion the same time the media did at the press conference. And that so shouldn't be the case. It shouldn't be the case, but it was. And we were given a legal briefing with absolutely no uh, motion to refer to, no idea of what was the substance of it. So it was a very awkward and vague uh, legal briefing because we didn't know what we were talking about. Literally, we didn't have a motion in front of us. So I, w- I would say communication's not great. Uh, you know, those videos like that aren't actually that complicated to put together. Stock photography, they've got a lot of material. They've got a huge staff to do this kind of work. Um, I look at the substance of the motion, and I think it's pretty pretty flimsy and hastily put together. So I don't think that this has been thought out for a lot. I think this is a direct result of the the fallout as a result of, of A, the <clears throat> decision for council to override park board's jurisdiction and install an AstroTurf field in Moberly Park, and then B, the fallout over over uh, the, the three moderate former ABC commissioners refusing to support the mayor's choice for uh, chair and vice chair. So a lot of people assume this is a rubber stamp because of the numbers within City Hall that's going to end up going to the province. The province is going to, quote, make this decision. Ken's got a pretty good relationship with guys at the provincial level. Like, he's really worked hard over the last calendar year to try and make sure that he's got those relationships so that this might also pass and then the charter changes. And is there any way to stop this, I guess, is what I'm trying to get to. Um, you know, I mean, I think that there will be some compelling arguments. And, I mean, certainly my intention, I recognize that 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 they have their their – their uh, intention, and I'm going to argue to maybe try and, and shift some of that intention. I think that the appropriate thing to do would be to maybe put this on the back burner as far as disbanding park board and work to see how you can improve the existing park board structure and recognize that these are democratically elected folks by the people of Vancouver. And it's 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 a, it's a insult to anybody who went out and did their research and voted for park board commissioners based on what they wanted to see to have the mayor override that and centralize all the pop power in the back room in his office, which is essentially what's going to happen with his motion. So I think there's an opportunity to say, you know what, I think this is a little heavy handed. Why don't you try and 
work with the, 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 the principles of open, transparent, and accountable government and, and, and give this a different think. There are some reports, well, I shouldn't say reports, but opinion pieces that came out yesterday and today saying this might be a short-term play, but the long-term ramifications are actually going to hinder the city as far as the fact that I don't think people realize how much the park board takes on and just the scope of it. Is that something that, uh, again, might be a short-term victory for Ken Sim, but in the long-term play might actually come back to bite the city? Well, look, I mean, like park board commissioners are very specialized in the in the work and the thought that they put into the stuff that they do. And they're a governance board. And we, of course, we have really tremendous staff who do a lot of the, the heavy lifting and the, and the, you know, development of strategic plans and operational plans and that kind of thing. But as a council, we don't have any of that experience. We don't have any of the, that specialized experience that the park board commissioners do bring to the table. Brendan Bastiovansky is all about field sports. You know, Tom Digby is all about... Um, natural kind of environments and Scott Jensen's worked for years in the in the, in the low-income education world and he's like worked with kids and he's like, so they bring specialized resources to do the job I, I'm not bringing any of that not that I'm gonna have any say in the in the mayor's office obviously but but I don't think I don't see that expertise coming out of the mayor's office either I think the last question that I'll ask for you, and I do appreciate your time, is is persuading the public. Because like I said, many that listen to this station said, it's time to go. Park board, man, it's been nothing but a slog. And you know what? Optically, maybe it's time for a change. How would you persuade somebody to maybe change their opinion? Well, I mean, I think the first, you know, I mean, really, we want to see improvements in the parks and recreation system. It, it involves us as a city, the city council, investing more money in park board. And we've been consistently shortchanging them in the budget. And, and this is part of the result. When we see crumbling infrastructure and, and we see, you know, a need for more investment in the park, that is largely on, on the city council because we are the ones who approve the budget. We are the ones who give them the financing. And frankly, I think this timing is to distract from the actual real story, which is another big budget increase from Mayor, Mayor Ken Sim. Hmm. All right, let's go to the phones to North Van. We go, Dennis, thank you for your patience, your thoughts, and uh, any questions for Ken or for Mr. Fry, Pete Fry. Uh, no, not really any questions, but, you know, from the outside appearance, uh, not that I know a lot about the inner workings of it, but the appearance is, is that the park board is redundant. I mean, you do have staff in the park and so on and so on, but every decision you make has to go back to council. So on an efficiency basis, it doesn't appear to be that efficient. Well, I mean, it's that's not quite the case. So they they have their own sort of operational autonomy. What they have to come back to council for is money. So they obviously have revenue generation tools through, you know, fees and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, they need to square that with council because we have oversight of the budget. But this is the same sort of construct that we see with school board, which is also elected, but they are really beholden to the finances of the province. So the province funds schools and the education system. And the Vancouver School Board has uh, enough autonomy to decide how they spend that money. So there is distinction there. And I think what it comes back to is, is accountability. And when you recognize that the, the park board, in essence, is the reason that we have Stanley Park, the park board is the reason that we have publicly accessible beaches that aren't you know, waterfront condos, that's, that's part of the role of, of the park board is to keep that sort of interest in, in development and real estate and speculation at bay and provide for sort of a more of a livability lens on, on, on development in Vancouver. I wish we had more time to talk because I'd love to get into referendums and all the other things that could come on the other side of this. But Pete Fry, thank you for making time for me today and thank you for your insight. Hey, happy to be here, Rob, anytime.
34 minutes after 12, I'm Rob Fay. Thank you for making me a part of your afternoon. You know, anytime you hear something about the uh, environment and what they're trying to do to cap and help with carbon emissions, you always want to make sure that you can dissect it because the Montreal Economic Institute says that capping the energy sector emissions planned by the Trudeau government is actually going to be really costly for the Canadian economy. This is the Liberal government's unveiled framework to cap oil and gas emissions anywhere from 35 to 38% below what the 2019 levels were. So to speak a little bit more about this, Crystal Wittevregal, Senior Policy Analyst at MEI Calgary. Crystal, good afternoon. Hi, hi, thanks for having me. Well, I want to get into this because obviously when the government comes forward and says that they're going to do something good for the environment, you're always going to have the backlash of people that say it's going to affect the economy. So where do we find the balance in between the two? Well, really, when we looked at the the details that were announced today, um, the cost is going to be a minimum in the most rosy uh, pie in the sky scenario, uh, $6 billion. So, you know, to start there, we're talking about jobs that are going to be lost or not created. And we're talking about significant losses in tax revenues. That's not to say the environment portion of this is unimportant, obviously. But Canada doesn't have control over global demand or global production or global emissions. So ultimately, this local action is going to export our emissions while also exporting our jobs and significant losses in tax revenue and, and all the rest of it. Um I know that the environment minister came out and he says, quote, we owe it to Canadians and the rest of the world to address these emissions as we owe it to our workers and businesses to ensure Canada's well-earned reputation for energy innovation. I, I get that, and I think that's great political speak, but what does that mean to the actual boots on the ground? <laughs> I mean, your guess is as good as mine, but when we look at what the oil and gas sector, who is the target of this, um, this cap, they're world leaders when it comes to spending on R&D for clean tech. So they're the ones that are investing, you know, significant sums of money in these emission-reducing technologies already um, and will continue to do so, or so it appears that way. Um, but when we're cutting into what we can do on the production side of things, we're going to be cutting into what can be done in the investment into these cleaner technologies as well. I was reading a report actually this morning as I was getting ready for this interview and some were suggesting that the targets are actually more modest than expected and the reason that they came in somewhere in the middle is they wanted to avoid all of the constitutional and legal fights with the provinces. Would that be accurate? You know, I'm not entirely clear on the constitutional, you know, targets, um, deliberations on that side of it, but there's two different kind of targets that have been set out, um, there's the 35 to 38% um, kind of off the top reduction from 2019 levels. But then they've introduced these, what they call compensation measures or a decarbonization fund and carbon credits, which look like something more to the tune of 20 to 23% in reductions of emissions. But with all of the you know jargon and things that they've kind of put out today, there's no details really on what those compensation measures really will look like, which is why our estimate of the six billion is like the very minimum of what we would expect to see in terms of the impact on our economy and having all of the losses um, resulting from the best case scenario 
from what we know today. Yeah, but our Premier Daniel Smith coming out with a statement uh, earlier, basically just saying, listen, um, you know, this is an attack on Alberta. And really, when it comes to the Constitution, they feel as if they have exclusive jurisdiction to develop and manage them. Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, coming out also saying instead of taking the opportunity to promote Canada's sustainability and, you know, within the global stage, he says that the federal government's response is basically to impose new policies and basically cap everything, which is actually going to hurt the economy as well. And again, I'm paraphrasing on that one, but you've got two key provinces in this country, both big providers of energy to, you know, the entire country or majority of it, both saying, hey, this is not a good plan. So you're going to have those on one side that are saying this is great for the environment, but you're also going to say this is taking a lot of food off of the uh, tables of many people in Western Canada in particular. Well, exactly. And then when we really look from a global perspective of emissions reductions globally, we are not going to be producing those barrels of oil here with caps, essentially we're looking at a production cap. That's not to say that countries like Russia, Venezuela, or Iran are going to say, oh, we're also going to cut our production, not meet demand. It's just exporting the emissions. So really, we're taking really big hits to our economy, to, you know, workers in this sector who there's a significant proportion of Canadians involved in one way or another in this sector, Uh, who are taking the hit for exported emissions that are just going to end up in the atmosphere, which is essentially what we're trying to kind of not do. Rick Smith uh, was cited in an article. He's the president of the Canadian Climate Institute. And he says, you know what? It's a sensible framework, at least from an approach perspective. But he doesn't like the timeline. He says there's no need to push off implementation until 2026 or later. What do you think about the timeline? Like, I'm, I'm well aware of your thoughts on this as a whole. But what do you think about the timeline? The timeline itself is interesting because they're talking about certain cuts by 2030 but not like necessitating action until 2026. And then on the other hand, we've got the timelines affiliated with talking about carbon capture and technologies that are set to help us in this fight against lowering our emissions, us being Canada. And we've been waiting for three years on legislative action to be able to move forward with carbon capture. So there's all these various timelines up in the air with everything to do with emissions. And so really it's a big soup of murkiness um, and I'm waiting for more details to really see what that's going to look like. NDP critic Laurel Collins basically said, and I'm going to quote her at a time when people expect the government to take on the climate crisis, the Liberals instead have listened to oil and gas lobbyists, giving them the oil and gas emission cap framework that's low, riddled with loopholes and won't put Canada back on the right path for meeting our emissions target. Is that a fair assessment? No, no, that's not a fair assessment. And really, the the narrative of the oil and gas industry is, is sometimes one that I find puzzling because we've got an industry here in Canada that's managed to cut its emissions per barrel by by a third since the 90s. So we're making strides at, you know, us being Canada. Um, and so the continued vilification when we're trying to make it to somewhere together is it's puzzling. It is puzzling. I, I, I just, I see the policy in place. I understand that this looks great at COP28, but I feel like if the average Canadian can't make sense of it, the chances are it's probably not ready to go to the public. So uh, we'll see how the work continues. But I do appreciate your insight, Crystal, and thank you for making time for me this afternoon. Thank you so much for having me.
Rob Fain for Jill, six minutes after one o'clock here on a Thursday. A little soggy outside. Hope wherever I find you, I find you well. You know, a lot of text today coming into the inbox here talking about which uh, items at the grocery store are the ones that kind of catch you by surprise. Milk, eggs, a lot of dairy. He's in the conversation today and uh, picked up on an article that asked the question, how much more do you expect as a family of four? This is the prototypical family of four. How much do you expect to spend on food next year is in 2024? Because overall food prices look to increase between two and a half to four and a half percent in the next couple of months according to the 14th edition of Canada's food price report that was released a little bit earlier today. To talk about this the academic director of food and resources economics out at UBC Dr. Colleen Wiseman kind enough to join me. Doctor good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thanks for the invite. Well, my pleasure, and let's get right into it. Obviously, everybody wants to know how deep they're going to have to dig into their pockets. Um, what did you make of the initial thoughts on the uh, food price report that came out today? Right. So we're actually part of the, the UBC team, and the Food and Resource Economics is part of the uh, development team uh, for this Canada food price report. So we're able to get sort of the inside scoop for sure. What did I make of it? Um, I think it's good news. It's good news for consumers. I would say that finally, after a number of, you know, sort of increases that have been quite, quite concerning for all of us, uh, that things are calming down. This 2.5 to 4.5 means that food prices will be increasing as they usually do at more like the rate of inflation as opposed to, you know, forging ahead at a much higher So calming down is the way that I would uh, define it. The one thing I think is public perception is going to be a challenge. It might take a little bit longer for people to really feel as if they're starting to see value again, because it just feels like over the last couple of years in particular, doctor, that we've been gouged. How long does it take for the mind to match up to the price tag? Yeah, it's very true. I mean, it is difficult. You walk into the grocery store and you see oil and bakery and meat and, you know, across the board that these things are going up five and seven and eight and nine and 10 percent. We, You know, in our lifetimes, you know, we've never really seen those. But really, in terms of adjustment, uh, I'm not sure. I think it really makes a difference as to if your wages are adjusted, you know, and that's, of course, what's happening is that these things are becoming entrenched because there's been a lot of negotiations, federal level, provincial level, university levels, uh, even, you know, in terms of adjustments of uh, minimum wages and wages. So that's going to help ease that pressure because the wages are becoming more in line with our cost of living to some extent. It's, it's a great point that you bring up. You know, I was looking at the um, some of the analytic here, and it says despite inflation, Canadians actually spent less on food in 2023. And uh, a lot of people decided that they were going to start substituting for cheaper alternatives. Now, doctor, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to ask you, you know, calories and all that kind of stuff, but do you think that, um, I, I guess best way to say this is if you're going to try quantity as opposed to quality, is, is that a blessing or a curse? I, you know, exactly right. You are correct that the report, you know, if we had kept the same, we would expect it to the actual price in terms of annual spending for a family of four to be higher. It's around $700 less based upon what we see the shopping habits are, quantity and quality. If you are substituting, you know, higher price products for fundamentals, like let's say, you know, some type of a processed product for beans, lentils, you know, potatoes, like something that is high quality in terms of nutrition, but is less expensive, then of course it works in your favor. Um, If instead you're just 
buying less food and your family is going without, then of course, that's that's what we don't want, right? That's the affordability factor kicking in associated with it. Dr. Colleen Wiseman is an academic director, of food and resource economics at UBC here on the Jill Bennett Show. I want to talk a little bit about the uh, climate impact on food prices. We just did a segment where we were talking about CO2 and emissions and all the other things that Canada is trying to get in front of. But the impact on food prices, I'm not sure if people understand just how much the climate plays a factor on some of the key ingredients that they shop for on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a good point. The sort of the impact of climate and and i guess really you know we talk about this carbon tax elements of it too controversial but interesting um from a climate point of view what the research and the studies have said is that they make you know when we have our floods or there is you know uh say frost that creates you know a shortage of supply those elements are quite short-lived like we feel the impact associated with it as a temporary change in supply prices might come up but prices will also go down because there's adjustments because our our products in terms of where we source them are global so yes there may be a drought in california or a frost in washington but mexico doesn't have that so we're you know resourcing associated with it so temporary connected to it but but certainly we would feel that kind of impact the long term is the big key factor of this, right? We expect these to become more common because climate crisis and climate change is in play. This is this is no longer if it's happening, it is happening. And we've seen it certainly in BC. And therefore, we expect more of these impacts throughout time for sure. We got a text into the inbox. They want me to ask you about grocery competition globally. Uh, we always talk about sticker competition when we go to you know certain stores around our neighborhoods. But we have obviously some great resources here in Canada. How much are other countries fighting to get those resources? Um, you mean like in terms of sort of prices? How much one competition for another, or what? Maybe I'm not quite. Yeah, no, it's it's a very vague uh, text into the inbox here. I, I think what they're meaning yeah. is like we have some great resources, whether it's wheat, you know, grain, what have you. How much uh, are the other countries around the world fighting to get our product? Yeah, I don't think that there's much of that. I think that they're, you know, supply-wise, uh, again, going back to that idea that, that things are, are are globally sourced. I mean, that's both the good and the bad of, of our, you know, very robust supply chains for food. So... We have wheat. Yes, we grow it in Canada, but they also grow it in, in, you know, Australia and they also grow it in South America. Right. So the idea of having competition, that there's a shortage, there doesn't really tend to be a shortage. That's not really what's causing any kind of these prices, the fundamental shortage of the food. You know, what's causing these changes of prices has more to do with things that are in the supply chain. Things such as transport, things such as labor, things such as rent, things such as basic, you know, like glass bottles, you know, uh, products such as, you know, packaging, those kind of things. So I don't I don't think that 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 is what I'd say would be a major element uh, to, you know, of a concern. Well, it's good to know. I, I think there's a bit of a misconception. Like, I understand what our uh, what our listener is saying when he's like, you know, the rest of the world's looking at us from our fisheries. They're looking at, a, you know, the things that we produce here in Canada. I think he's saying, I want to make sure that Canadians can get to that as opposed to the rest of the world kind of pillaging our, I, I guess, the things that we're fortunate enough to have in this country. But uh, again, that's what I decipher from that text. Doctor, it's right. a great conversation. I really do appreciate you stopping by. we got a lot to chew on. I've got an open segment on the other side of the break, so we'll get the caller's opinions on this, but thank you for yours today. 
All right. Absolutely. Anytime. Uh, And remember, prices are calming down. That's a good thing. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.